Welcome to Matters of Fact. I'm Christian Esguera. Today in the program, we're going to talk about the weaknesses in the Philippines' health regulatory framework, especially in light with the distribution of an of, of an unauthorized antiparasitic drug used for treatment of COVID-19 or even as prophylaxis, especially also in light of uh, President Rodrigo Duterte's inoculation with a China-made vaccine, which has yet to receive an emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. Joining us now is a former Health Secretary Esperanza Cabral. Good morning, Dr. Cabral, and thank you for joining us on the program. Good morning, Christian. Nice to have you back on the program, Dr. Cabral. Let's talk nice about this uh, latest developments when it comes to, for instance, the distribution of ivermectin. But I'd like to, I'd like to start with the, with, the, the, with the fact that President Duterte himself has been vaccinated already with Sinopharm, but that particular vaccine has not received emergency use authorization. What do you make of this, uh, of this development and of the president saying that it was his doctor's decision and that in the end, ultimately, this is his life? Well, number one, the use of Sinopharm in the country has been legitimized, let's put it that way, by the granting of the compassionate special permit given to it when the vaccines were injected to the PSGs uh, illegally. At that point, it was illegal because there was no compassionate special permit given at the time that the vaccines were injected to the members of the PSG. After that, the injections were legitimized by the FDA by providing it after the fact with a compassionate special permit. So when the president used it, it already had a compassionate special permit. So it was legal at that point. When in the case of, when the case of President Duterte, that was already legal. Uh, yes, I think that that is uh, the situation. But when you talk about compassionate special permit, can that actually apply to, let's say, a group of people receiving a previously unauthorized drug or vaccine? Or doesn't it uh, apply, for instance, within a specific environment, for instance, a hospital, for a very specific use with the, uh, with the blessing of the patient involved and the doctors? Well, I understand that, that the compassionate special permit was given to the PSG hospital because there is a hospital in Malacanang for the presidential security guards. So the compassionate use permit was given there, and the people who are, who are using or who use the vaccine on that basis um, after the fact became legal when they used it because um, the compassionate special permit was issued after the fact. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned that the very important uh, term, after the fact. Yes. So, does it suggest, or it's quite obvious seemingly, that the regulatory framework was the one that adjusted to a fact that oh, already happened? Yeah, and what does, it say, what does it say about our regulation? Well, um, that is something that uh, the FDA is going to have to regret because uh, this is not something that regulatory agencies should be doing, acceding to pressure and uh, legitimizing or regularizing illegal um, activities. Um, the next time something illegal 
uh, done by an influential and powerful person in the country happens again, they'll have to be forced to regularize or legitimize it again. Uh, definitely, but do you think the FDA still has that um, the credibility to actually switch uh, shift gears and next time try to exercise its mandate or perform its mandate, especially with what's happening now? Oh, I hope, I hope that they will get the courage to do that. Because I think one issue here is that the, the issue has been politicized not just because of the criticism, because the criticism is quite understandable and it's not exactly ba uh, baseless, but the, but the process itself appears to be politicized already. What do you think? Oh, I think that uh, even the Director General of the Food and Drug Administration has admitted to severe political pressures to do things that he otherwise would not be doing because they are not right. Yeah, and everything has to be uh, based on science, on data, on credible and information. And the law, because there yeah, are regulations, the there are laws that cover the activities of the Food and Drug Administration when it comes to the regulation of uh, drugs and other devi and devices and other things that we take. Uh, so these laws and regulations are there for our protection. The Food and Drug Administration is the agency that is supposed to protect us from unsafe and ineffective drugs. So, but given the but given the, rea mm. but given the reality here in the Philippines, do you honestly believe that, for instance, the FDA um, could go against the wishes of the president or uh, some no, politicians? No, I do not think that uh, it is possible to do that. And the other alternative is really going to have to resign his position if, if, if the director general feels that uh, he cannot do what um, his uh, superior authority wants him to do because he feels that is wrong, that is illegal. The, uh, the only alternative is for him to resign. On the other hand, there are arguments for staying in the position. Maybe the director general can do within that particular position um, more mitigating actions in order to protect the welfare of the Filipino. So far, do you think the, the FDA is succeeding even a bit in that respect? Um, for now, um, I have not heard of any real harm coming from the injection of the Sinopharm vaccines. Uh, I, I have heard of a lot of harm coming from the use of ivermectin. So in the case of Sinopharm, there, there is uh, no foul at the moment, but in the case of ivermectin, there are many things that need to be investigated as far as that is concerned. Okay. Uh, before we go to ivermectin, but I think it's also important to, to put things in context that even if there's no harm seen, let's say with the inoculation using Sinopharm vaccines, I think if you stick by the, by the mandate itself, it doesn't, uh, that, that's just one issue. But the important thing is there has to be authorization before something like that could be administered. Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think the people, the politicians and the doctors who administered ivermectin um, are liable and uh, should be investigated and charges should be filed against them if found that there is probable cause that they have uh, violated the law. Isn't it quite obvious uh, with the recent events that we have seen? For instance, in Quezon City, two partidist congressmen, they're not doctors definitely, but they are politicians, very politicians, uh, distributing um, ivermectin drugs for their constituents because they claim that uh, this actually worked as treatment and prophylaxis for COVID-19. Um, yes, but I am not a lawyer, so I cannot file charges against them nor investigate them. So, But that is what I suggest. Hmm. But when you talk about the FDA, for instance, uh, how difficult really is the situation or the predicament of the FDA, specifically in the face of this uh, strong lobby coming from politicians and even several doctors uh, oh. to approve ivermectin for COVID-19 treatment? Because I remember... I think this was last week. There was a hearing at the House of Representatives where the FDA was also um, called in. And then basically, uh, that hearing was made to somehow float the idea or certain studies supposedly backing uh, ivermectin for COVID-19 treatment. Uh, how do you see this, uh, this intense pressure? How difficult really is the situation being faced now by the FDA? Oh, the operative word there is intense. Really, I, I feel for the Director General of the Food and Drug Administration, and I think that the politicians should not be subjecting bureaucrats such as him um, to pressures like this so that they can do their jobs properly. If you are an, an agency of the executive department and uh, you know that your budget, for example, comes from the legislative department and the congressmen put pressure on you, in fact, publicly rake you over the coals in their so-called hearings in aid of legislation, it's very difficult to withstand this kind of pressure. So I sympathize with the Director General of the Food and Drug Administration. And I think uh, before that hearing was called, some of the uh, congressmen that we spoke with were saying that uh, that was intended to also look into the uh, guidelines, policies within the FDA with the hope of perhaps improving on them through legislation. Uh, as a former health secretary, do you actually think that there is a problem with the, uh, with the guidelines, with the, with the mechanisms at the FDA, or that this has more to do with implementation? Well, in the case of the compassionate special permit use or in the case of the registration of uh, drugs and similar products, I don't think that there is anything wrong with the policies. You are right that there are probably things that can be corrected as far as the implementation of these policies um, is concerned. Okay. And so far, how do you think the FDA has been responding to this, uh, to this pressure or strong lobby from politicians and some doctors? Um, they are responding as well as they can, I think, but uh, it is not uh, good enough at this point for them to protect the interests of the public. Um, the, position that the, the position of the Food and Drug Administration 
has weakened markedly. And the next time something like this comes along again, um, the position will be even further weakened, and there we, they will have no strength to say, I cannot do this because it's wrong, it is against the law, because they've already um, abetted the violation of these laws. How, how do you think the, the, the process can be depoliticized? I think the politicians should leave the Food and Drug Administration alone. Let the process go through. Let the experts' opinions um, dominate over the opinions of the politicians in the same way that uh, we think of randomized clinical trials as better than anecdotes and testimonials. That is what should be done. Let the expertise be the thing that influences our policies and our actions. Speaking of the randomized uh, trials, uh, there is an upcoming clinical trial set here in the Philippines to see whether ivermectin could actually work uh, against COVID-19. But what do you think? Is this, uh, is this a wise decision and to also spend big money on these uh, clinical trials because of this intense lobby? I'm talking about the Philippine government given its limited resources because this is one perspective in this issue. Uh, why don't we just go by the clinical trials that are now being conducted abroad and perhaps just look into those studies or into those results? But what do you think? Well, the way that uh, it works is one who wants to promote and market a, a substance as a drug is the one that funds the researches that prove or unprove that this particular substance works or doesn't work. It is not the government that should be spending $22 million in order to prove or unprove that this particular substance works. Okay. It's all about the dangers. And uh, what we know so far about ivermectin um, as a drug being promoted for COVID-19, what does the uh, science say so far? What does the data say so far, as far as we know? Well, if you will look at the data, uh, there are now accumulating evidence that the use of ivermectin among humans can be subject to many side effects, particularly if the dose being used is higher than it should be. And while science accumulates this data, the position is that we should not be using it in the same way that we should not be using it because the data are not sufficient to tell us that it actually works for COVID in this case. It works for things like river blindness or strongyloidiasis and things like those. And researches have been done to show that this is uh, what is happening, but not for COVID. So the country, the citizenry, should not be using this, and the FDA should be protecting us from it being used because we don't know whether it works properly or not, what dose should be used, and whether the side effects are actually worse than the disease that it purports to cure. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's, uh, that's correct, but how do you counter this uh, intense lobby, intense promotion for ivermectin as COVID-19 treatment or prophylaxis when in fact uh, some of your colleagues are also promoting it, meaning doctors? 
And uh, there's a tendency, of course, for ordinary people to actually listen to, to these experts, even if they're not necessarily uh, experts in that particular field or subspecialty or specialty. Yes. How do you counter that? Yes, well, the professional organizations, including the Philippine Medical Association, the Philippine College of Physicians, the Philippine Society of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, have all stepped up to give statements on what they think ivermectin um, is and what should be done about it. And I think that uh, these organizations, their, their statements carry more weight than the statements of these four doctors who are um, cooperating with these two politicians to distribute and prescribe ivermectin to the public. So it's always like that, the weight of the statement and the weight of the evidence. Um, and I think what should happen is the medical organizations should increase their activities to communicate to the public their positions. And um, when it comes to violations of their codes of conduct, they should implement these things um, on the members that they have who are violating their codes of conduct. So in short, they can go after those doctors who are still promoting ivermectin for COVID-19 treatment despite the, the statements or the positions taken by the organizations. Is that correct? Oh, yes, they can. They can go after their own members. They have um, the power to uh, reprimand them, to uh, suspend them to expel them from the organization if they think that their members are doing some things inimical to the interests of the organization. And in the same way, the Food and Drug Administration has quasi-judicial powers and should exercise them. For example, they can actually ask for temporary restraining orders against these uh, activities. They can go to the areas where these drugs are being distributed and confiscate them. They've done this before. They can do this again. Mm -hmm. And even the, the, this is quite alarming, the, the, the prescriptions uh, that were supposedly issued during that distribution of ivermectin in Quezon City, uh, there, there were information included on the prescription, but there were no names as far as doctors were concerned or the license number. Correct. So even the Professional Regulatory Commission should be able to discipline these uh, doctors who are violating um, the rules and regulations that govern our activities as physicians. Okay. Now, of course, we know that at least five hospitals have uh, been granted uh, compassionate uh, uh, special use permits uh, for ivermectin. But what is the policy? Can doctors outside of that hospitals actually issue such drug for COVID-19 for patients who are not actually in those hospitals? No, that violates the compassionate special permit. They are not covered by that. So in short, hindi siya pwede distribute parang vitamin C or paracetamol? Hindi, hindi Okay. In your case, I'm curious about the challenges that you yourself has been facing. Uh, for instance, have you been approached by, by some people and asked whether ivermectin could be, could be used as prophylaxis and treatment for COVID-19? And what do you tell them? How do you convince them? Oh, every
every day I get at least a dozen calls asking me about ivermectin, and I tell them that I do not recommend that they use this for prophylaxis or for treatment of COVID-19 because there is not sufficient evidence to show that it works, and we do not know yet what the side effects are going to be at the dose that it should be given. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually what's the response? Do they end up believing you or do they end up just contradicting you? Because they might say, well, I saw on the internet and this politician said this or another doctor I know is using this. Well, usually the people who call me are the people who believe in me. So that's the reason why they call me because they want to know what I think about it and they usually believe me. So they just seek, but they, they, they try to validate the information from yes. you. Yes. And that's a good thing. Now, honestly, what do you think is driving this intense lobby for ivermectin? Oh, From politicians I'm, and even some doctors. I think that uh, a lot of it is really good intention, intentions. Okay? I'm not saying that these uh, politicians and these doctors are being malicious as far as they as in their promotion of ivermectin. I think that it is born out of uh, some desperation because of uh, the threat of COVID-19. But I also think that they have to temper their desperation with evidence. Okay. But why don't they just, let's say, spend more time or effort promoting vaccination, given, for instance, um, vaccine hesitancy in some areas or many areas in the Philippines still, despite the, the raging pandemic. This is another perspective that we keep hearing. How come uh, there's intense lobby for, for an unproven antiparasitic drug for COVID-19? And why don't we just, let's say, focus on convincing more people to accept vaccines for COVID-19? Oh, I agree with you. Absolutely. Well, you know, in India, they were using ivermectin widely for the treatment of COVID-19. And now well, we know what the situation is in that country. And now we know that they're scrambling to get vaccines from everywhere so that they can control the raging uh, COVID-19 disaster that they have. So that's actually proof that ivermectin doesn't work. Because okay. in a country that used it, the surge of COVID-19 has become uncontrollable. But the other thing is, here we are, um, vaccines uh, have been proven time and again to work for certain diseases. And in the case of COVID-19, we already have proof of that in countries like Israel, for example, in some European countries, things like those. And I cannot understand how people will say, let's not vaccinate people and let's take ivermectin instead. It's just something that goes against logic. Yeah, I've been meaning to ask you that. I mean, how do you explain that? This willingness to put their trust in an unproven drug, but doubting the efficacy of vaccines for COVID-19. I mean, it boggles the mind. Yep, it boggles my mind too, (laughs) Christian. Okay. Now, as the last part of this uh, interview, I'd like to talk about uh, the the current uh, pandemic response of the government. We know that uh, there was an ECQ uh, two, for two weeks and then an extended MECQ uh, in Metro Manila and nearby provinces. Do you see 
concrete steps or concrete accomplishments so far or infrastructures, COVID-19 infrastructure systems put in place finally during this, uh, this MECQ, extended MECQ? And are you seeing better numbers now to be able to say that perhaps after this, we could be uh, relaxing further uh, some of the protocols that we have? Yes, I actually see that uh, there have been improvements and positive steps that the government has taken in the past two months. I am just sorry that it took this kind of surge for them to wake up to do this kind of things. You know, we have been under lockdown for 16 months already. Has it been from March? No, well, 14 months from March to May now. So. It is okay for us to make mistakes and not be up to par when it comes to responding to COVID in the first few months when we did not know too much and we were really surprised. But we could have taken the rest of the period to prepare for the coming surge because there will always be one surge or another because we had one in August, so we anticipate we should probably get one sometime soon. In fact, we anticipated we were going to get it in December. Fortunately, we did not. But we should have prepared for that anticipated surge in December. And if we did, we could have been better prepared for this real surge this March and April. In the meantime, President Duterte described the Health Secretary Francisco Duque as uh, the hero in the government's uh, pandemic response. Do you agree? Well, he's entitled to his own opinion. But what do you think? Uh, I have my own opinion. It's different Which, from his. But how do you think uh, the secretary has been handling the pandemic response? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure he has been trying his best. I always tell um, the people that I used to work with in the Department of Health that I'm sure you are all trying your best. But at the moment, it does not seem to be good enough. So you need to try some more. Okay. Former Health Secretary Esperanza Cabral, thank you for joining us this morning, ma'am. Thank you very much, Christian. Good morning to all. Good morning also. Bickering continues between President Duterte and former government officials on the West Philippine Sea row against China. Duterte says it was former Foreign Secretary uh, Albert Del Rosario's fault why China was able to overtake areas in the West Philippine Sea. The chief executive even went as far as saying that Del Rosario should be held liable for his actions. Ikaw, Albert, Alberto, bakit mo inaatras? Kaninong permission ka naging... Ngayon, kung wala kang maibigay, huwag mong ibigay sa akin yung kasalanan mo. Uh, uh, naghanap kayo ng libre. Alam ninyo, one day, one day, you will be tasked to answer for that. Yung pag-order ninyo. Dapat investigahin ka. And if... I don't know what will be the history of this country. Because if I were uh, uh, a leader anymore, uh, I will execute you by hanging. 
Duterte also slammed former Supreme Court Senior Associate Justice Antonio Carpio after he after the retired magistrate said that the president might have committed grand estafa for denying, make, for denying making promises in the West Philippine Sea during the 2016 presidential election. President Duterte has been criticized for having a supposed defeatist stance on the West Philippine Sea issue as he opted for better ties with Beijing. He previously said the Philippines should be thankful for China's help amid the pandemic, but insists China's generosity did not come with any commitment. I never asked anything. I asked. I was asking friendship. That was all. That was one after the other. Sabi ni Xi Jinping, ito, ito, ikay ko, gano, gano. So, salamat. Salamat kung mayroon. Kung wala, salamat rin. Supreme Court Justice. Pareho man sa'y abogado. Gusto, eh, gusto mo magdebate tayo. Madalawa, tatlong tanong lang ako. Sino ang nagpa-retreat? At anong ginawa ninyo after sa retreat? Joining us uh, this morning is uh, Liz there, the uh, co-founder and CEO of, of uh, geospatial intelligence firm Similarity. The company has an upcoming report that says a large number of Chinese ships remain in the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. Good morning, Liz, and thank you for joining us uh, on the program here in Manila. Good morning, Christian, and thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk about this upcoming report of your group. Basically, what remains of the so-called vessels, sir? Uh, the, the Chinese claim that they are just fishing vessels, but of course, authorities here in the Philippines and uh, from our, our own allies are saying that these vessels are part of the maritime militia. Talk to us about uh, the remaining vessels within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. Absolutely. So as of May 3rd, we counted just seven boats in Whitson Reef, seven ships. So they did indeed leave Whitson Reef. Um, however, they moved about nine nautical miles over to uh, Hughes Reef, which is also in Union Banks. And we counted around 150 ships there. Okay, additionally, oh, excuse me. Okay, go, go. And additionally, um, they moved a large number of ships over to Gavin Reefs, which is just about three nautical miles from the Philippine EEZ. And there, there are about uh, 50 ships on the Philippine EEZ side. So we're looking at about 200 ships. We don't have the flags for the ships at this point, but they look very much like the ones we saw at uh, Whitson Reef. They are still in the Philippine EEZ. Okay, again, just want to get the numbers straight. Uh only seven ships remain uh, near the Whitson Reef or the Julian uh, Felipe Reef in the Philippines. So they left uh, about 300, uh, three nautical miles, but that's already outside of the EEZ, is that correct? Uh, nine nautical miles to right. uh, Hughes, and that is still within the EEZ. In fact, that's still within Union Banks. Okay. And then they moved another group of ships over to Gavin Reefs, which is three nautical miles outside of the EEZ. Okay, so what does this suggest? Uh, that they left, but they didn't exactly uh, went, uh, go past the EEZ of the Philippines. Yes. 
How long have you been monitoring this, uh, these vessels? Uh, we've been monitoring the disputed areas of the South China Sea since October. So they've been uh, within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone uh, since October. Actually, they've been there longer than that. Um, we've got some counts of ships in, near Titu Reef, near Pagasa Island, that go back several years. Okay. So overall, uh, within the exclusive economic zone of the Philippines, how many vessels again remain? It's approximately 200. It's approximately 200. So I'm curious about the numbers because this is a uh, this is part of the uh, contention between the Philippine government and Beijing uh, regarding uh, the type of vessels that are actually there. So previously, the claim of Beijing was that those vessels near Whitsun Reef were just taking shelter from uh, from bad weather, right? But as you found out, they've been there for quite uh, some time. Okay, is that correct? Yes. Mm -mm. And then, uh, have you noticed any pattern of behavior coming from these vessels that you've been monitoring? Almost all of them are moored. They don't move. Um, you can see the wake in a satellite image if a ship is moving, and almost all of these uh, ships are not moving, so they're moored in one place, just like they were at Whitson Reef. We did see only one ship fishing at Whitson Reef in March. Uh, today, we see about seven ships fishing with their nets out uh, near Hughes Reef. Mm -hmm. And um, how long usually uh, was the stay of uh, a particular group of vessels based on your monitoring? How long do they stay in a particular area? That's hard to say. I don't have an exact answer on that yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. And of course, uh, when did you start monitoring all these vessels uh, in the area? Um, so when uh, in March, the Whitson Reef uh, invasion was noticed by the Philippine Coast Guard. Uh, we, we started looking at that and then looking back historically uh, about the ships that had been there. And we saw that it went past all the way back to December and then on and off before then. Uh, so we're able to, with the satellite imagery, look at what's happening now, but also look at pictures of what has happened in the past in order to figure out how they move and where they've been. And they also see a similar pattern of behavior elsewhere in the disputed areas in the South China Sea. Uh, yes, so between Subi Reef and uh, uh, T2 Reef, they're very close. Subi Reef is held by the People's Republic of China. We see ships go back and forth, sometimes in the 60s and 70s of them. 60 to 70 ships go from City Reef over to T2 Reefs to occupy it again, staying moored and not moving, and then go back to Subi. They also see a pattern in terms of uh, turnaround. For instance, uh, a specific number of vessels form a group and then only to be replaced after a specific period by another group. They see something like that. We aren't able to see that because in order to identify a specific vessel, it needs to broadcast its AIS signal, its identification signal. And the majority of these ships do not broadcast that signal, even though ships more than 30 meters are required by law to broadcast the signal. 
So we are unable to identify specific ships because they are not broadcasting the signal. Yeah, and also that's part of the uh, deniability uh, as, for, as one of the features of a maritime militia, right? So uh, it's very difficult to identify them unless they actually declare those information. Is that correct? Exactly. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about, let's say, this, they also see a swarm, uh, as we speak, based on your latest monitoring, a swarm of uh, such vessels, for example, in the parasols. Uh, we have not looked at the parasols recently. Um, we've looked at Woody Island there, uh, which is the PRC headquarters in the parasols, and they are doing construction and land reclamation. But we have not seen a swarm of ships recently. We have not looked in the last couple of weeks. Okay, so this upcoming report, what else are the uh, salient points? Um, I think the salient points are, as you summarized, these ships are not leaving the EEZ. They may move, have moved away from Whitson Reef because they were asked to do so diplomatically, but they did not move very far away and many still remain within the Philippine EEZ. Mm, so they... <laughs> So, so to, to, to a lot of observers, uh, basically that might just seem like uh, an accommodation on the part of Beijing, given the intense diplomatic protests uh, filed by, by the Philippines. Because I think the promise or the commitment made by the Foreign Secretary of the Philippines was that he would fire off uh, daily diplomatic protests against the presence of Chinese vessels until the last vessel actually leaves. No? So this is quite disturbing because based on your study, they didn't actually leave the EEZ. They just remain uh, elsewhere, no? That is the reality that you're seeing. Exactly. So the, they demanded that the ships leave Whitson Reef, and they did. They did not leave the EEZ, however. So, yeah, maybe they should have been more specific about demanding that the ships leave the EEZ and not just Whitson Reef. The exclusive economic zone of the Philippines, where the Philippines exercises sovereign rights, right? Now, exactly. talk to us about the, the monitoring system that you have. How exactly are you able to identify the presence of these vessels? Talk to us about the technology, for instance. Certainly. So, we're actually a software company, and we use artificial intelligence to analyze many, many satellite images to detect patterns of behavior. And we uh, use uh, very inexpensive imagery that is low resolution, about 10 meter resolution, to monitor what's happening. And then when our software detects the change, we can then go in and look at higher resolution imagery with an experienced analyst to determine what that actually means. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also cross-check those information, for instance, with other stakeholders or with, uh, with countries involved. Um, we have worked with AMTI and cross-checked our information with them. Um, and we've worked with another team of uh, geospatial analysts that are ex-military. And we have a, a blossoming relationship with a research group in Vietnam. How about, uh, for instance, those from China or even Malaysia or even Indonesia? No contact with them yet. Okay. And basically, this, uh, this reports that you come up with, uh, how do you disseminate them? 
So they're free. All somebody needs to do to get our reports is just subscribe on our website, www.simularity.com. You can sign up for the South China Sea Rapid Alert, and then you'll receive an email every time we have a new alert. Okay. Liz, there, thank you very much for joining us this morning on the program. Christian, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that's our program for today. I'm Christian Esguera. You can listen to our interviews again on the ANC Matters of Fact podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. You can also get all the exclusive content on ANC's YouTube channel. Thank you for watching.